Most of us in healthcare are warm, caring people who are committed to keeping our patients safe and doing no harm. But there are some among us who do the unthinkable and betray our noble profession. On this podcast, we like to shine a light on the good and the bad. Each week, I'll be joined by another healthcare professional, and together we'll dive into these stories while chatting about nursing and healthcare along the way. I'm Tina, a registered nurse, and this is Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. This is Tina again with Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. Welcome back to another episode of this podcast where, you know, we talk a little true crime and a little nursing, a little just healthcare in general. We'd like to kind of throw a little bit of everything in there and hopefully come up with some good discussion sometimes of issues that are going on in our healthcare world and, I don't know, facilitate some good, good chat about about those things. But before we get into these stories, I want to introduce our guest host for this week, Sierra. She's a medical student assistant. Sierra, welcome to the show. I'm happy to be here. (laughs) Oh, it's so good to have you. We've been trying to get together now for it's been a few months, yes. so we've finally been able to make it happen. <laughs> Last time, some technical difficulties, but we worked through it this time. We got it. <laughs> they, Yeah, they happen. They happen all the time. Anytime you're trying to use technology to do anything, problems just arise, but we work through it. So I guess we can get started with this bad nurse story. I will warn you guys right now. I mean... The bad stories that we do at the beginning or the, you know, the bad nurse stories that we do are obviously they're true crime stories. A lot of times they're going to have some details that are disturbing and some content that can be difficult to hear. So I, f- I feel like people know that they're going to be getting something like that usually with these stories, but sometimes the content is just particularly disturbing. And I will just tell you that it isn't any kind of Okay, I don't feel like I need to do like a tr- a trigger warning as far as, you know, there's there's no particular content where we would use it we would do a a, a typical trigger warning, but oh my goodness, Sierra. It's a pretty pretty rough story, I have to say. I agree, like not maybe a trigger warning, but it is pretty pretty rough content um <laughs> to read through. The details. <laughs> yeah, and it's not that we're going to get into any, I, I, I don't usually get into any sort of like gory details, even on, you know, in cases where kind of gruesome things happen, but it's not easy. You, you have to tell what happened and just even trying to say it as basic as you possibly can. Ew, yeah. It's, 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 yeah. It's even bad. with the most basic description with this one, you, you, you can't avoid some kind of mm-hmm. disturbing content with it because if you're trying to state uh, yes, the facts. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So just, just saying, kind of saying that, saying that up front. Did you know that you don't have to go all across the country to be a travel nurse? You certainly can, but you don't have to. I literally took an assignment that's an hour and a half away from my house and I love it. I can stay in a hotel room if I want, or I can drive back home. So it's the best of both worlds for me. For my next assignment, we're going to get a cabin in the mountains that's about two hours from our house. So it'll really be like a little getaway. Also, one of my really good friends is going with me so we can share expenses. You guys, even if you're just a little curious about travel nursing, go to trustedhealth.com forward slash good nurse and fill out a profile 
profile so you can see what kind of jobs are out there and what they pay. Go to trustedhealth.com forward slash good nurse and fill out a profile. Are you looking to take your career to the next level? Consider enrolling in the Doctor of Nursing Practice Program at UC Irvine. The program offers a post-master's track for MSN-prepared nurses and a family nurse practitioner track for those with at least a BSN. Their program, of course, is fully accredited, and their graduates are highly sought after by healthcare organizations across the country. If you're ready to take the next step in your nursing career, I encourage you to explore UCI Irvine's DNP program today. Visit nursing.uci.edu to learn more, and of course, we'll put a link on our website and you can access it at goodnursebadnurse.com. This is the harrowing case of Ramsey Scrivo. Ramsey was a 32-year-old man who met with a very tragic end. He was living with his mother, Donna Scrivo. She became the subject of, as we've been kind of hinting at, of a grisly investigation that really shook their community where they lived. They lived in a really nice area in Michigan, this kind of like a quaint, quaint neighborhood. According to reports, the last time neighbors saw Ramsey alive was on January the 24th in 2014. So six days later, Donna Scrivo was seen driving suspiciously along Fred Moore Highway and Allington Road. I just want to know how she thought people wouldn't be able to see her being mm-hmm. suspicious. <laughs> right. Especially I mean, with it, what we're about to get into. Right. <laughs> I know the fact that someone noticed you just drive. How do you drive suspiciously? <laughs> she I mean, had to have been like creeping along very slow along the side of the highway right. on the shoulder or something. I know people notice this. It's it really it's going to be one of those one of these cases that's going to have you scratching your heads, guys. I mean, really, you're going to just go. This is not true. They okay. Tina's run out of stories now. She's just gone to making <laughs> stuff up because there's no way that this happened. Eyewitnesses recalled seeing her disposing of something from her silver SUV. Furthermore, she had been observed loading large garbage bags into her vehicle by the neighbors. Later, authorities discovered a chilling scene. Ramsey's remains were scattered in bags along the aforementioned highways. Alongside his remains, a power saw identical to one purchased by Donna from a Lowe's store that week was found. So the home shared by this mother and son didn't really have any significant you know, amount of blood, but guess what there was evidence of? If there's no blood and you think there was probably something sinister that happened in a home, then you're going to probably smell bleach. And that's, of course, yes. what they Mom what they trying found. to clean up the big mess that she made. Yeah, exactly. They said there was a potent smell of bleach. There's a snapped episode of this story, and I had it on yesterday because I I like to kind of watch it. Usually, like if it, if there's a you know videos and stuff, I like to watch them like the day before the show, just sort of re- kind of refresh my memory and put put all the put the story in my head of exactly you know what happened. So I was sitting there watching it, and my husband who he works from home walked into the living room with this story on, and he. He just stood there looking at the TV for a second, and then he sat down in the chair, and he kept watching, and I thought, oh, dear, Mark, you're not going to want to watch this. I felt felt bad. I wanted to warn him, like, "Um, I'm not sure. He and I are an opposites attract kind of couple in a lot of ways, and so he isn't necessarily one that's going to sit there, you know, and watch true crime and... Um, I definitely have my things that I will watch and the things that I won't watch, you know. Um, I totally 
understand that because there's a lot of things that it's like, I can watch these by myself, but I really don't know many people that are going to want to watch this with me and enjoy it exactly. <laughs> and not mm-hmm. think what is wrong with yeah. me. <laughs> I know. I was, I was just like, um... I'm watching it for the podcast. Your friend is, you know. uh, when I when I first started doing that, this is another Tina tangent. Sorry, guys. When I first started doing the podcast, I remember going, "Oh, I can watch true crime and I don't have to feel guilty about it because I'm it's research right. for the podcast." So, so there is that kind That's of uh, guilt that you feel, especially whenever you're listening to like the really well known cases, and people do go into detail with those a lot, and it's like. I feel bad because if someone heard this, they they would think I'm also about to, you know, like commit a crime or do something crazy. <laughs> Why are you? Are you yeah, studying like, for something? Like, what do, do you do? You need this for a reason. Um, <laughs> I always just say it, I. I really think, you know, because I have thought about it, why in the world would anybody want to watch that? Why do I? Why do so many people want to watch true crime or fascinated by it? I do think that there's different reasons. Everybody has their their reasons. I think for a lot of women, I really believe this, that there's some element to it of watching stories to kind of know what people are capable of to sort of almost prepare yourself Almost to kind of see the red flags that are going to be there whenever people mm-hmm. are going to act like this. And then it's also, I think it's interesting to see kind of the mental state that these people are in whenever they do things like this, because it's, you you can't be in a sound mind. There's no way someone of a sound mind can do something crazy like this. It's hard to like imagine that this, it's her son that we're talking about here Getting kind of back to the story, a neighbor testified that they were hearing a saw being used between January 25th and January 30th. And then during that same time frame, they reported both burning and chemical odors coming from the Scrivo residence. So in a turn of events, Daniel Spitz, a Dr. Daniel Spitz, the medical examiner, concluded after an autopsy that Ramsey died of asphyxiation. So... Given the way that they found his remains, I I think that that was probably pretty surprising. Yeah. Honestly, though, it's like better to hear than like he passed by how they found his remains, you know? Yes, exactly. Or any kind of, you know, more, I guess, violent or in a way that, that would cause him, you know, his last moments to have been, you know, full of horror and terror. There's a little bit of a silver lining and the gruesomeness of it. Exactly. And he also found large amounts of Xanax in Ramsey's system, suggesting he may have been drugged before his death. So Donna, it seems, did happen to have a prescription for Xanax. And just so happens there were 10 and a half pills missing from her recent batch. So that's something I think that a lot of maybe a lot of petty criminals, and I really think maybe even people who think they're smart enough to get away with something, maybe wouldn't consider like, okay, I have a prescription for this, this medication, no one's gonna, it's my medicine. But if they say, when did you get it filled? Right. And it's in a, it's a controlled substance like this. It's like, they're going to know how many are missing and how many you should have taken. Either you were doing something illegal with them, or mm-hmm. this is, you know, what right. they found. <laughs> exactly. 
So that's, you know, and it's certainly not going to be something that's going to put her away for life for murder, but it's definitely a a pretty significant clue that alongside other things can help build a case against her for sure. So phone records also highlighted a concerning detail. When Donna went to the police the next day after she supposedly realized he had he was missing, she says he, he went out to the store and never came back. And this is in Michigan in January. <laughs> it was one of the absolute coldest winters in the history of Michigan, the state of Michigan. So if you can imagine, I... You know, I, we live in Tennessee. I I don't know what these winters no. are like. I don't know. I think it's cold when it starts getting, you know, like well, thirty. Yes. I mean, you know, yes. I mean, below freezing. Anything that's, below that, it's you know, like I just I have to stay inside. This is it. <laughs> it's impossible. Who lives in the? Who lives like this? Yeah. And so then you hear of how cold it gets up there, and all the snow, and oh, I don't, I don't know. It's. It's amazing. I think it's beautiful to see pictures of it, but I don't know how people survive. And so apparently Donna went to the police and said that her son left the day before, the evening before, wearing like pajama bottoms, I think, and like boots um, and a flannel shirt, like definitely not dressed for this kind of weather, for sure. (laughs) Absolutely not. I mean, not dressed for that kind of weather if you live in Tennessee in January, let alone the coldest winter in history in the state of Michigan. And so the police were thinking, well, something's definitely wrong. Yeah. There's no way if he's, you know, if he's out in this weather. So she said, well, he he, he, he never came back and, and she was worried. She's reporting him missing. But she said, I've been trying to call him. He's not answering. I don't know what to do. So they start looking through Ramsey's phone records and they see that Donna actually never tried to call him after the the time that he went missing. So they're going, okay, other people have been trying to call him. Other people were worried about him. He, you know, they have all these calls of people trying to get in touch with him, but his mother never did, which is kind of interesting, isn't it? It's kind of a a loophole in her own story that she's woven and I just think it's crazy that people, I guess she didn't think they would check those records. And this, but in, you know, when this is happening, it's like, that's one of the first things they're going to do if it's a missing person, because that's how they can track you down. They can pinpoint where you were, Mm -hmm. you know, and for the person who should have been calling him to not have called him, kind of a big red flag there. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. Especially when she literally says, I've been trying to call him. Yeah. I mean, it would be suspicious if she, if you, if she wasn't, why weren't you worried? But if she had some reason for thinking he was somewhere else and therefore had no reason to call. But when you say, I've been calling over and over again, and he's not answering, they have a record. They can tell. They're going to know. know. (laughs) So during her trial, Donna defended herself. She painted a chilling narrative. She said that on the morning of January 26th, a masked man threatened to kill Ramsey. So, This is the story that she told on the stand. There was a lot of evidence kind of piling up against her. People seeing her driving suspiciously down the road, looking, I think one person said it looked like she was trying to dump uh, a a dog. Yeah. You know, like somebody, I don't know why in the world anybody would want to even dispose dispose of an animal in that way. Let alone their child. (sighs) Right. And so... 
that you have people, you know, those witnesses, you have neighbors and the, the things that they heard, hearing a saw and smelling chemicals, you know, and that sort of thing. Seeing her carry bags that looked really heavy as she's carrying them. So all of this evidence is piling up and she kind of didn't have really a lot of choice, but to just tell this story, which she says is true. They said that she said that this masked man threatened to kill Ramsey and tied her to the bed. So he's threatening to kill him, tied her to the bed. And according to Donna, that intruder remained in their home for five days, forced her to help dispose of her son's body under the threat of harming other family members. So this is someone who stayed masked the entire time in front of her for five days. And wanted nothing but to kill her son. Yeah, that was the only thing that they needed to accomplish. What's hard for me to understand is why would it take someone five days if all they needed to do was was kill someone? Usually things like that don't happen unless there's also like money involved or they're wanting some kind mm-hmm. of compensation, I guess, in any other story I've read that's kind of had something like that happen. It's just, it's always been... They're wanting compensation for something. It's never just been they want to target this one specific person and nothing else. Nothing else is involved. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So again, you know, all this other evidence kind of like, you know, you, you stack that up against the story and sort of see if you can make sense of it. I'm I'm a, the kind of person that I really like to give people the min- benefit of the doubt. I in doing a lot of these stories and researching stories, you know, for the past five years, I come across stories a lot that people were falsely accused of things. And so I think that that is terrifying to think of, you know, being accused of doing something, especially something so heinous. And really, in, in fact, you were a victim. And we've done some stories like that, where the person who's being accused was actually a victim and the police just kind of twisted everything around and was like, well, we think you had something to do with it, or we think you're just, you know, you've concocted this whole story to hide what you were really doing. So I do like to try to kind of keep an open mind about these stories, about someone's version of events, you know, in a situation like this. It's also hard to believe that instead of going immediately to the cops and saying that this was the story this is suddenly the story whenever she goes on stand because they would have been able to see who broke, where they broke into the home, been able to probably even get evidence of the intruder. But clearly Mm -hmm. there was most likely no intruder (laughs) that happened. Yeah, exactly. I think that, that, you know, just having a reasonable mind, just trying to, to think reasonably about this and, and even stretching that as far as you possibly can to give someone the benefit of the doubt, you cannot stretch it that far. It does not reach. We all know that when we're taking any medication or supplement, dosage matters, and it's important to take enough to get the desired result. For example, only taking a 10 milligram Tylenol might not help with your headache. Well, the same is true for CBD. If you try a low dose CBD product, you may not feel anything. 
But it's not the CBD's fault. The dosage is the problem. This is why CBD Stat only makes high-dose CBD products that actually work. And now their products are getting even stronger. CBD Stat is happy to announce that they're launching a new extra-strength version of its highly popular topical products that have 7,500 milligrams of CBD. This new strength will by far maintain CBD Stat's status as the most powerful CBD product line on the market. More CBD means it's more effective in helping everyone tackle daily aches and pains. CBD Stat sent me a box of these new products and I already knew it was going to work because I've been using it for my neck pain and foot pain, but I can definitely tell the difference in this new strength and I'm really excited to get to tell you guys about it. And on top of these new higher strength products, they're also dropping prices across the board on all their products to make CBD Stat not only the most effective on the market, but also the most affordable. And don't forget, all you healthcare workers out there get a special additional discount to help keep you strong. Just head to cbdstat.care forward slash healthcare and find your new secret weapon. That's cbdstat.care forward slash healthcare. The jury agreed. They were definitely unconvinced. So she was found guilty of first degree premeditated murder, mutilation of a human body and unlawfully moving a body without medical examiner permission. Her subsequent appeals and a habeas corpus petition failed to find any merit, solidifying her guilt in the eyes of the law. Ramsey's death and his subsequent trial have cast a shadow over the Scrivo family. Sources have revealed that they were grappling with significant challenges prior to this tragedy. So, you know, a lot of people would probably think that there was maybe a life insurance policy or something like that, or maybe um, Ramsey had some money, that, that there would be a reason why that Donna would have done this. And the thing is, there wasn't. There was no life insurance. He did not have any money. He was 32 years old and he kind of had a a difficult time as an adult. He went to college and graduated with an accounting degree, got a job as an accountant, but he couldn't quite hold that down for, for some reason and ended up losing that job and then just kind of bouncing from from job to job doing different things. and ended up working for his father who his father owned like a I think sort of like not construction company but something like maybe painting and that sort of like handyman kind of thing and was very successful was very successful with it so I think Ramsey was was helping to do that so there was really no financial no, motive there wasn't really any gain that she could have had from this I mean, in my eyes, there's not really any, there's no monetary gain, emotional gain. There's no revenge motive, really. Like Right. So his father, Daniel Scrivo, had passed away in May of 2013, and that definitely hit him very hard. He was very close to his father. Ramsey had been diagnosed with psychosis and uh, showed signs of severe instability even threatening to take his own life after his father's demise. So despite his mother, Donna, which we haven't even said this, but she was a registered nurse. She went to nursing school when she and her, she and her husband met a long time ago and got married and she went to nursing school. So she had been a nurse all these years. And she was actually granted guardianship over Ramsey because of his mental health issues. And he had been re- refusing to take his medications he had paranoia and severe depression. And so I guess she was appoint, appointed as his guardian. 
So she was responsible for him. She and her husband had bought him a condo and he was living in this condo that they owned. So he's he's living in this condo owned by his mom and dad, which his dad passed away, of course, in 2013. Now that his dad is gone, I guess, I don't know what he was doing for a job. So his, his mom actually moved in with him. They had a somewhat of a, um, I don't know if it's called an, if it's an accident, it was a suspicious uh, fire that happened at their home. And so she actually moved out while there were some renovations were happening. And she was living with Ramsey in this condo when all of this went down. And I think there was maybe some raised eyebrows over, over the fire because they, they weren't really sure what caused it. Ramsey was there at the time that the fire was set and the fire firefighters had to go in and rescue him from what other people were saying at the time. It sounds like she maybe didn't seem all that concerned to trying to get, you know, trying to get him out. If I don't care how old my son is, if my son is in a house that's burning, I'm going to, I will die trying to get them out. Right. Like if it's my child, even my animals, I'm going to try to get them out. Like, Mm-hmm. A stranger, I would probably go in and try to help, honestly, if I knew what was going on. I just, I can't imagine my own child, though, just being like, ah, oh, no, they're fine. You can just, they're okay in there. Yes. Yeah. So that happened. She's living with him now. He, I think at this point, um, I want to say maybe working in uh, lawn maintenance or, or something like that, he faced numerous mental challenges. Um, one time, I even believed someone had implanted a speaker in his tooth. He's definitely struggling. And she, in her own way, I guess, trying to help and manage the situation. There is one possibility that that someone talked about on the Snapped episode was the fact that she had met someone. She was from Texas originally. And after she got married, they moved to Michigan. But she had her roots in Texas. That's where she grew up. And so she was visiting maybe for like a high school reunion or something. I don't know. And met someone down there and started kind of like, I guess, a long distance sort of maybe conversation. I don't I don't know that they would call it a relationship, but it seemed as though she was interested maybe in moving back to Texas, but she was, she had this guardianship over her son. And I think there was some speculation that possibly she, she was kind of wanting to be free but I just, I still can't even imagine in that kind of situation. That's one of those where it's like, no, this is, this is the situation that's happening in my life. You either accept it or you don't. <laughs> like, <laughs> yes, most people, most reasonable people are not going to be able to wrap their head around what in the world she could have possibly been thinking, right. how, she, how she could have behaved in this way. It's just so unfathomable. And then I feel bad for him, too, because clearly he's struggling a lot. I can't imagine being in his state and then not realizing how your mother is feeling about you. Yes. You know, he was very close to his father. And there were some people that that said that mm, his relationship with his mom wasn't wasn't really good. Now, some people said she really doted over him, you know, growing up, but I I don't know that that necessarily means that once he became an adult and was maybe interfering in her wanting to have her own life and yeah. you know, just be free of any responsibility. I don't know. I guess people people change. And if somebody is that dark in their heart, I mean, clearly 
there's something yes, wrong, like, you know, there, it was somebody that could I mean, do this, she's so. struggling with something too, <laughs> in a way, you know, like they're both having some mental health issues going on, clearly. Yes, exactly. Well, really sad story. I'm not sure what we can even learn about this Sierra. It's, um, there are no lessons to be learned, because I feel like, who can learn from right. this? There's how can somebody be so depraved there? No one would make these decisions. Now, one thing that I've, I've kind of joke around about whenever I do these stories is that Lowe's and Home Depot, you need to stay away from because there are people all the time going there buying duct tape <laughs> and all kinds of saws. I've, these stories it's are true. full it's of people true. going to Home Depot and Lowe's. I'm just like, what in the world is up? Like, and for another thing, like they're, they keep receipts I don't care if you pay cash. They have video. They will find you. The police know to yes, go to Home Depot and Lowe's. Like, there's the three places, Home Depot, Lowe's, or Walmart. Those are like the, th- Walmart, the three places exactly. that these people go and buy the stuff to do it. And there's going to be video evidence. There's going to be people who have, th- whoever rang you out is going to, you know, be like, yeah, they bought this, this, and this. I thought it was weird at the time, but I didn't question it. You know? <laughs> yes. And we've had people. Yeah, exactly. We have people too, who will go to neighboring counties to the other Walmart thinking, I'll go to that Walmart, not this Walmart. No, the police are, they know, they know what you are thinking before you ever think it. They already have it in their heads. I feel like police, they know how to think like a criminal. They deal with criminals all the time, so they know how you think. So if you have the idea that you're going to get around the problem of them being able to see you on camera at Walmart buying your duct tape by going to a neighboring county, the police are going to go to a neighboring county because they're going to think somebody's going to do that. So there's nothing you can do that... that the police aren't going to try to, anything you can think of they can think pretty of pretty think much. about it that i way. mean and it's it, you're they're not the first criminal to do these things either you know it's not the mm-hmm. it's it's not their first rodeo as someone who's done something like this <laughs> like people this is totally something that's happened before it's just yeah. especially with this case i i just the motive is just insane to me it, it's just because usually people do have a, a motive of financial gain or something where it's like they're going to get an inheritance. And I'm sure the police probably looked immediately into that to just see. You know, is she going to get social security checks or something if he goes? Anything. Anything. But no. But no, nothing. So I have to tell you guys about an experience I had with a nursing student. So you know I've been doing travel nursing Well, this hospital where I'm at has a lot of LPN students doing their clinicals there. So one of them was following me around one day and she noticed my stethoscope. And of course, y'all know the Echo Technology Company that sponsors our podcast. They teamed up with Littman to make the stethoscopes, to beat all stethoscopes, the 3M Littman Core Digital Stethoscope. And this is the one that I use now. So she said, oh my gosh, I've been wanting to try one of those. So of course I let her use it. And she just could not stop talking about it for the rest of the shift. It was so cute. She was like, you know I can't hear anything with my normal stethoscope because I have tinnitus. And so she was so excited because she could actually hear what heart sounds were supposed to sound like. She said, I'm going to ask for one of these for graduation. And I was like, yeah, you definitely should. So just so you know, the echo technology that makes the stethoscope so amazing. Uh, You can enable it with a flip of a switch. You can turn it on and off. It has active noise cancellation up to 40 times amplification 
wireless auscultation using Bluetooth technology. It connects with Echo's free app and software so that you can visualize, record, share, live stream, analyze heart sounds, lung sounds, and whatever body sounds you want to listen to. So you can go to echohealth.com and use the promo code GNBN to get $50 off your order. And that's Echo is spelled E-K-O, by the way. So it's echohealth.com and use the GNBN promo code to get $50 off your order. I also wanted to remind you that if you're interested in travel nursing, to go to trustedhealth.com forward slash good nurse and fill out a profile so you can see what kind of jobs are out there. And you can also see what they pay, the stipend, the hourly rate, all of that. I'm a travel nurse now with Trusted Health, and I absolutely love working for them. So go to trustedhealth.com, be sure and put forward slash good nurse so that they'll know that we sent you there and fill out a profile today. If you're like me and you don't want ads interrupting your podcast flow, you can access our episodes ad-free just by becoming a patron. You can also have access to bonus material like episodes being released early, the video footage of me and my guests recording the episode, and a brand new podcast that's offered exclusively to our Patreon subscribers called Breakroom Conversations. Your support will really help us to keep the podcast running smoothly. To learn more, just head on over to our website, goodnursebadnurse.com, and click the link to become a patron. Well, I guess that wraps it up for the bad nurse story. I'm really excited to get to talk about the this good nurse story because I've been this it's been around for a while and I feel like every week there's something there's another there's a different story I need to talk about depending on, you know, the show that we're doing. So I've been kind of I've had this one in my back pocket for a while wanting to talk about this. It's so cute and exciting. But before we we do, I wanted to just talk a minute about the medical assistant program that you're doing, because I feel like that's something that a lot of people don't know or understand, you know, what role it is. So just really briefly, Sierra, explain to people like, what is it that a medical assistant, it's probably different state to state, yes, I'll say that yes. too. We live in Tennessee. So that's going to, as far as your scope of practice and that sort of thing. But what kind of program is it? Um, how long is it? What kind of um, you know, what will be your scope of practice? What types of things are you, will you be able to do with um, being a, as being, being a medical assistant? So as a medical assistant, basically, medical assistants are kind of not necessarily replacing, but in a lot of doctor's office situations, they're, they're more common than nurses are now. Um, most nurses mm-hmm. are more prominent in the hospital now. And, you know, we're the people that are going to come and get you, take you back, check your vitals, you know, do the whole interview with you and, you know, work with the doctor if they need to do any kind of in-office procedures. And then our scope of practice is really just dependent on what kind of facility we're in and depends on what the physician says we can do. So a lot of the time, so like if I were in a dermatologist office, I would be helping with, you know, biopsies and things like that. Or if I were with a urologist, I would be helping with them scheduling up like radiation testing and things like that. So pretty much it's the in-between guy <laughs> from the front desk to the doctor. And we can do things like injections and phlebotomy. But for the most part, it's making sure everything's communicated between the doctor and the patient. Clearly, that's a lot of our job as patient education, too. And the program I'm going through is Walter State community college and it's a six-month program and it is 
pretty intense for it to be only six months. <laughs> and there is, we are required to take a state exam afterwards, which I'm nervous about, but <laughs> I think I can do it. Mm. I think I've got it. <laughs> is it a licensed position? We is it a, It's is a it- certified position. So I'll get a certification through the state board. Wow. Um, I think that's neat. And I think it's it's neat that we have um, this position that's sort of helping out with um, the problem of not having enough people, which I don't necessarily think it's going to help the, our bedside problem, because the problem with ha- not having enough nurses working at the bedside really doesn't have anything to do with there not being enough nurses. It has uh, everything to do with the way that nurses are yes. treated who work at the Yes, bedside. and that was one of the <laughs> so. things whenever I was looking into kind of switching into this career choice, I was like, I don't know that I could handle how some nurses are treated at the bedside. I applaud you all because it is definitely not a job for everyone, and I think it's an amazing thing that you all do. Because, like I said, I don't think emotionally, because I'm so sensitive, I don't think I can handle doing like direct bedside with patients like that. It's just, it's a definitely amazing what you all do. Well, thank you. I think, you know, it's um, very, it's a very rewarding career. I've talked about that a lot on this podcast. I love it. It's why I have a podcast literally centered around it. But it's sad to me what is happening in healthcare, it's been happening really for decades. Slowly, there's been a, a slow a kind of erosion w- when it comes to patient care in the hospital, and it's directly tied to the nurse to patient ratios, the number of certified nurse to assistants or or nurse techs that are available to help with patient care. People there to answer phones, people there to draw blood. Just having the staff on a unit to really handle all of the patient care that needs to be done. And it, these hospitals are kind of running these units at, and as um, sort of skeleton crews. And it's not just nurses, it's everyone in healthcare. It's it's doctors, it's nurse practitioners, it's PAs, it's nurses, of course, it's n- nurse assistants, it's respiratory therapists, it's people who work generally in direct patient care at the bedside are finding it more and more difficult to do their job safely, where they feel like they can do it well, get to all the patients they need to get to, be able to keep their eyes on them. Many times in very vulnerable situations where the condition is very fragile and they're needing to be monitored closely, and you're just kind of like, you really have too many patients and too much to do. That is the real reason. I always feel like I need to say that because there really is not a shortage of nurses. There are millions and millions of nurses and they are coming down the chute every three months, every time, every quarter, at the end of every quarter. There are so many nursing schools in just the region that we live in that every three months there are more and more nurses that are coming out as new grads. And those nurses are starting to work at, you know, at the bedside. And then other nurses who've been there maybe two or three years are saying, and this is not what I thought it was going to be. This is too hard. Not physically hard. Not, you know, we can handle that. Don't mind, don't mind the, the hard work. Don't mind even the emotional, you know, you know, we, we can be resilient and we can learn, you know, healthy coping me- mechanisms to get us through those things if that's the kind of, you know, what we want to do. And oftentimes that's how nurses are. But when you, when it comes to feeling like you're, you are, risking the lives of the patients that you're taking care right. of because 
of the, yeah, you know, that's, that's, that's where they're drawing the line. And that's the problem they're yeah, in right now. And I can't, like I said, I just, I applaud you all because I could not, that's probably why I wouldn't, wouldn't be able to work at a bedside too, is because it, they're people, these patients are people and they need the appropriate care. And it's kind of hard whenever you, it's kind of out of your control per se, like, you know, like you said, with having enough people. It's kind of out of your control how many people are staffed, and it just kind of stinks, honestly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But still, I'm really I'm happy to to know that these this position is available to try to help out with because so many doctors' offices you go into now they are also understaffed as yes. well. You know they, they they need help. I I go to the doctor regularly. I know I see how they're they're struggling. You know to get it all the patients in and you go and try to get an appointment and it's like months out because they you know there just aren't enough enough people to do the job and it's just it's kind of a scary world we're living in right now as far as I healthcare know, and it's to be, insane um, that I want to go into it at the stage that we're in but I <laughs> but we need people in it you know we do we definitely need people willing to do it we uh I feel like we need we need it we need the people in it, working and doing these these jobs, these very critical jobs, especially people who care about their their job and you know will be kind to people and will will be do the very best they can to do the you know the best job that they can, as opposed to, oh well, you know, too much to do and not enough uh, people helping. So whatever happens, happens. And I think sometimes that attitude can creep in among um, in a culture, like especially in a hospital in a unit where you just you just feel disrespected and like, well, obviously the hospital doesn't care enough about the the, the patients to staff it well. And it seems like this culture can almost creep in um, among the workers. So we need people there to keep that from happening. So we also need people out here trying to spread the word, trying to affect change, talking to our legislators to try to get laws passed to force these hospitals to have adequate nurse to patient ratios. Yeah, I I agree that it's a job you have to care about. That's the main thing. You have to care about this kind of job and you have to be willing to work with people no matter who it is, what they're saying, how they treat you. Like you, I don't know, because right now I am a dog groomer. <laughs> but no matter place that I started, I was not happy there, but regardless of that, I still took care of my clients and took care of the dogs as if they were my own because, you know, it's kind of like if I were taking my animal somewhere, I would want them to treat it like it's their own. Mm -hmm. And it's the same with, you know, when I go to see one of my relatives in a nursing home, I'm hoping they're treating them as I would treat them and that they're getting the full adequate care that they should be getting. That's exactly right. That's what you would hope that everybody would do, you know, in their job, especially when you're dealing with with people, with animals, you know. So I guess we can talk about the story. I told you guys I've been kind of excited to to talk about this. This is a story of an ICU nurse who was at a grocery store. I love these stories so much. This is from Scrubs magazine, scrubsmagazine.com, where I found this. It's it's actually in other places as well, but this is where I found the story. Binta Diallo was at the urgent care clinic at the local 
H-Mart in North Carolina because her son needed a physical for football and they weren't able to get an appointment at the doctor's office. I feel her. I have been in this situation before. <laughs> uh, so she was in line waiting for her coffee. Oh my goodness. Is this me? Is <laughs> I feel like they're talking about me right now. At the in-store cafe, when a woman started screaming, call 911. Oh my goodness. So Sierra, when, once you kind of get, you know, your, your certification and you, you know, some medical, you know, you, you have that medical expertise and you have knowledge that can help other people in a situation, like in a crisis. I don't know if you're going to become, if you're going to get your CPR. Yeah. We actually had to do that before we could even go into class. We had to get that and then the BLS. Okay. So I think a lot of people think that people in healthcare like these situations when you're able to jump in and help. And what I've found when I've been talking to people is that most people feel like I do, and you definitely do not like these situations. You do not want to have to be responsible in a situation where you are outside of your medical facility, where you you know you normally used to working in a doctor's office or used to working in a hospital, and you so you have resources. You have other colleagues that are there to help. You have you know things you can do to hook up to the patient to help them. You know, put oxygen on them or a defibrillator, yes. whatever. When you are <laughs> out in the grocery store, you have nothing. So this is this is terrifying to me. This is this is a scary situation. I mean, yeah, I would I would panic. It's one of those where it's like the adrenaline's going to have to take over in order for me to get through this. <laughs> yeah, and I think what a lot of people say is they sort of like you hear someone yell, "Call nine one one," or "Is there a is there a doctor? Is there a nurse?" And you're just like. You kind of stand there for like a half a second, going, somebody else. (laughs) Actually, a lot of times there really are more than there. Depending on where you are, if there's a group of people, there's usually there's someone, you know, people. It's (laughs) something, yeah. And so you kind of just, you know, you go, yeah, you, you jump in, you're there, you're available, and if you if it has to be you, it has to be you, and that's just the way it is. So Diallo ex- explained to the woman that she didn't have her phone because she, her son was using it. The woman disappeared and then returned a few minutes later with the baby in her arms and said, my baby's not breathing. Diallo asked her if she was okay. And the woman handed her the one-year-old infant, which was gray. There was blood in the baby's nose and mouth. Okay. I've never worked with children or infants. And so the whole time I've been a nurse, I've always worked with adults at the very, you know, youngest, maybe I think 15 years old, because I worked at a trauma center. And so that age, they they would put them on an adult floor at a trauma center because of all of the trauma issues that they had going on. But even then that bothered me, but they are more adult like as far as like their bodies and what you what the normals are and what you know, the ways that you treat them. They're more like adults than children. Children are not adults when it comes to what you do medically with them and all of their your normal vital signs and all that. It's very different. It is vastly different, vastly different. That's actually what we're going through right now in classes, pedi- pediatrics. And it is a whole different world from, you know, especially with medication that you can give them. It is very easy to overdose or underdose. It's a lot. <laughs> mm-hmm. Absolutely. It's so important. If if you don't know anything else, just to know that, just to know that they're, 
is a huge difference between caring, you know, medically for a baby or an, and a child and, and an adult and do, to always respect that. And if you're ever put in a position where you're needing to do something for a baby and you're not used to it, you have to be super careful, you know, about what, what you're doing. So Dialio, so she's, her head's racing. She's trying to, to figure out what to do. She said, I was trying to think very quickly. I didn't see bubbles in the blood around the baby's nose or mouth to tell me if she was breathing. She was just limp. She said the mom was still screaming, but I couldn't even hear her anymore. It was like having an out-of-body experience. She said all I could hear were my thoughts. I need to put this baby down to start CPR. Someone was calling 911. She said I should go to the front of the store to save time so EMS doesn't have to look for me when they come. She started to clean the blood from around the baby's nose and mouth using the blanket. When she got to the front of the store, she found some rice bags. So she rested the baby on top of the bag and started checking for a pulse. So she is, as I said earlier, she is an ICU nurse with experience treating adults, not infants. She tried to remember how to check for a pulse on a baby. When you learn ACLS as an ICU nurse in a hospital, a lot of times they want you to also know pediatric, um, what they call PALS. And even then, if you're just learning ACLS or even BLS, they will, you, you learn about babies as well, because clearly some situation like this can happen. So you, you do learn like how to check for a pulse, how to do compressions on a baby, you know, versus a toddler versus a child and all of that stuff. So she said people were around me, but I couldn't see or hear anybody. All I was thinking was, what can I do for this patient right now? So she started doing CPR with two fingers, but nothing happened. She couldn't do mouth to mouth because there was too much blood on the baby's face. Dialio was wearing a face mask because of COVID-19, but she did decide to rip it off so she could blow into the baby's mouth without making physical contact. She continued performing CPR for five or 10 seconds, and then the baby gasped. She opened her, she said she opened her eyes, but they were rolled up. She said, I was still doing CPR. Maybe two seconds after that, I could feel under my hand, a very rapid heart rate. I took my hand away and lifted her up. The paramedics got there a few minutes later. Dialio handed them the baby and said, I did CPR. I don't know how long it lasted. I'm sure she was probably just like, I have no right. idea what happened. Please take this baby. Black, I would black <laughs> yeah. out. Honestly, time would not even, would not even be a thing at that point. <laughs> Yeah, she said that EMS said, thank you for what you did. Now we need you to help us with mom. She attended to the mother who was still crying. I can't imagine. Oh, gosh. She said people in the store came up to her and asked questions about what happened. But she all she could think about was the woman's privacy. She said, I, I don't know. And she just was trying to protect that woman and her privacy and, and not telling everybody what in the world was going on. So then she left the store, got back in her car, but she was still shaking and crying. She said, I had been so calm in the moment, not thinking about if the baby was going to survive or not. She said, I didn't know how long she was without oxygen or if she would have maybe an anoxic brain injury or stroke. She said, I'm a mom too. I would have been just as terrified as that mom. I just hope there was a chance that she could take her baby home. She later reunited with her son and told him everything that happened while he was getting his physical. She said um, no amount of hospital training could have prepared her for that day in the grocery store. She said she had been an ICU nurse since 2008, and she's been in very critical moments with patients, life or death situations. I can believe that for sure. She said, I've helped, I help save people all the time at the hospital. Most of the time, you know what you're getting. You can prepare. 
You have everything yes. you need, as I said You've earlier. You've got equipment. You have, you have those resources. You know, extra people right. if you need them who know what they're doing too. Right. And you all work together as a team and, and you have one person doing one thing and one person doing something else and you're, you're all, you know, helping each other, working almost as a unit. It's just a, a very different environment from somebody being out, you know, in the community like yes. this and you're the only person doing anything. But, you know, she said... She still thinks about the baby and her mother nearly every day. She later found out from a reporter that the family was visiting from out of state and that the baby was discharged from the hospital after two days. That's so amazing. I thought that was so neat. She said she wished she had asked the mom's name because she always thinks about the baby and always wonders, you know, what did she become? She said, I hope somebody reads reads this who might know that little girl. It would be nice to meet her one day. So I wanted to do this story because, I mean, you just, you never know. Someone could, who knows? Somebody could be listening to this that it's um, a friend of theirs, of a friend, of a friend, or a family member, or distant family member, but somehow the story made it around to them and it could possibly it would be amazing um, if she could, you know, reunite with them to, I guess, ease all of her questions too of, you know, what exactly happened after, <laughs> you know, and the. Yeah. I'm glad that she at least was able to know that that yes. she that the baby was discharged and seems like everything was okay. That's yeah. that's amazing. I mean, she saved that baby's life. It's it is amazing. <laughs> yeah, and I, you know, when I think about it, the baby was one one year old. Like, what in the why in the world did it stop breathing in the first place? You just have to wonder: was there some sort of underlying condition that they maybe weren't aware of? How long had she not been breathing for? her to have already started, you know, completely unresponsive. No, she couldn't find a pulse. It's just insane. It's absolutely insane. She was able to save her. I know. So crazy. Well, I guess that kind of does it for this episode. Thank you so much for coming on to help me help me tell these stories. Anytime. I love reading stuff like this and I like doing this in particular because you get the good after the bad. <laughs> there's a little bit of joy after, you know, reading through something that you're like, oh, and you, there's still hope in the world, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, that's why I like doing the, the good nurse story last. My husband's like, why don't you call it bad nurse, good nurse? I'm like, that doesn't make, it just doesn't right. sound right. It doesn't right. sound right. <laughs> doesn't flow. <laughs> it, they'll figure it out. It's <laughs> fine. It is what it is. <laughs> well, you guys, don't forget to go to our website at goodnessbatters.com to become a patron to get your podcast episodes early and ad free. You also will get opportunity to have video footage of us recording the episodes and have access to our Patreon exclusive podcast that's going to be coming out soon called Break Room Conversations. It's going to be amazing. It's just going to be me talking with other healthcare professionals about all sorts of different fascinating topics. And those are going to be coming out soon um, on our Patreon. So you guys be sure and go there. You can email me at tina at goodnursebadnurse.com. Love hearing from you guys. And of course, I have to remind you that even if you're a bad girl or a bad boy, be a good nurse. <laughs> <laughs>